Amen. Well, it is my privilege to introduce our uh, guest preacher this morning, and uh, we are very grateful to have this dear brother with us. His name is Dave Harvey. He is a pastor of Four Oaks Church in Tallahassee, Florida. He is also the executive director of the Sojourn Network, um, where he has uh, been serving for the last uh, couple of years. We are very grateful for his presence with us as we are considering the possibility of joining the Sojourn Network, uh, an affiliation of churches that exists to perpetuate the gospel and plant churches, healthy churches uh, across this land. Uh, Dave has served on the board for those of you who know Christian Counseling Education Foundation since 2006. He uh, received his Master of Arts from Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, Dave is the author of several books, um, Am I Called?, which is a book that we use with our pastoral church planning interns. Um, he's written a book called Rescuing Ambition. And he's written a book that many of you have read called When Sinners Say I Do, a very helpful book on marriage. We have carried that in our bookstall, and we'll get some more copies of that so you can purchase one of those. Uh, one of the things I love about Dave is his gospel centeredness. He loves the gospel, loves Jesus, and, and that's very evident in his writing. He says this in his book, uh, When Sinners Say I Do. He says, Mercy sweetens marriage. Where, where mercy is absent, two people flog one another over everything from failure to fix the faucet to phone bills. But where it is present, marriage grows sweeter and more delightful, even in the face of challenges, setbacks, and the persistent effects of our remaining sin. And that's so comforting to know that the gospel and God's mercy is the essence of our marriage, grace-based marriages. So encouraging to, uh, to be reminded of that on a daily basis. And that's just Dave, Dave is driven by a man driven by a love for the gospel, a marked and evident passion for Jesus and for magnifying his gospel. So it is my privilege to uh, invite you to come up in a moment, Dave. We are thankful for your presence here with us. Thank you for, for taking some time out of your schedule, your busy schedule to come and to serve us as a church. We love you. We are grateful for um, your work in God's kingdom. Uh, in the United States, in your various capacities of ministry, you wear many hats, and we're thankful uh, for you. So let me read God's word to us, and then Dave, you come and you preach the word for us. Acts chapter 17 is where we'll be this morning, Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection and they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you, some strange things to our ears, we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything." since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live 
and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of all and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead now when they heard the resurrection of the dead some mocked but others said we will hear you again about this So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I want to begin by just, oh my, where to begin? I want to begin by telling you what a thrill it is for me to be here. Um, Just in sitting with the elders yesterday, which was not only all afternoon, but but well into the evening as well, and, and hear them talk about the joy of serving you and seeing the evident love on their faces for this local church. I mean, I just woke up this morning thinking, I can't wait to meet this church. I can't wait to see the people that incite that from their pastors. And so it's really a thrill for me to be here and to, uh, to be able to participate in a service here this morning and to be invited to be able to preach from, from God's Word. Uh, Jonathan and Mark encouraged me to make a couple of comments about Sojourn Network. I'm, I'm happy to do that. Um, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word network, but, but Sojourn Network is a ministry that is, is filled with, with pastors, um, broken, mission-minded, <laughs> earthy pastors who, who love their local church but realize that their church will be stronger And their leadership will be stronger if they have a place to go for counsel, a place to go for training and for care, a place where they could be sharpened on mission and how to think strategically about mission, a place where they can go with others who understand the unique challenges that they might go through as pastors, where they can sit with folks who are unimpressed with the size of their church or the extent of their gifts or the depth of their intellect and who will challenge them and will provoke them in appropriate ways. But it's not just about leaders. It's also about local churches, churches who love the idea of church planting and want to partner with other local churches to make sure that that takes place. And in our little world, you know, we're not a large thing. We're about 36, 37 churches, but there are church plantings happening. We're, we're supporting 13 different church planters right now. And uh, one of the things I was really excited about is last week I met, I met Danny and Neil, who, who lead the, uh, Danny leads the congregation of the deaf community that meets in this facility. And uh, I mean, it's the first time I had ever seen a man preach in sign language and, uh, and, and you're helping to facilitate that. And I'm so grateful to God for that. So, uh, yeah, Sojourn Network, you know, we're not a big group and we're not, we don't regard ourselves as exceptionally talented, but we are trying to be faithful. And we believe that's more possible if we walk this road together. And uh, I'm sure I'm glad that it's possible that we might walk it with you. So, thank you. Well, I've been invited this morning to make a contribution to your Back to the Basics series. I understand that already you've talked about 
what it means to be a member and a worshiper and a church family. And so this morning we are going to conclude. This is the concluding message, right? Okay, so this morning we conclude on the topic of witnesses, being witnesses. And the title of this morning's message is Gospel Fluent Witnesses. Gospel Fluent Witnesses. So let me stop there. Let's, let's pray because we need God. And then let's turn our attention to his word. Lord, before us in the passage just read is something that is infinite. And yet, Lord, we realize that we are here with these finite minds seeking to understand that which is incomprehensible apart from your hand, that that which is incomprehensible apart from your Holy Spirit giving us illumination. So please be with us this morning, not just in a general, generic way, but Lord, allow each of us, myself included, each of us to leave here feeling like we have encountered you through your word in some specific way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our title... And this idea of gospel fluency was chosen really to express one simple idea that I think emerges from this text and is often repeated in the New Testament as well. And that is that when, when you're taking your message to the world, it helps to know how to translate it. When you're taking your message to the world, it helps to know how to translate it. Pepsi Company learned this the hard way, by the way. Years back, they took their slogan, come alive with the Pepsi generation. They took that slogan to China, and the problem was in Chinese, whoever translated it, it was translated, Pepsi brings your relatives back from the dead. (laughs) And people heard this, and they were aghast, and sales plummeted. Why? Because no one checked the translation. I mean, yeah, Pepsi may kill you, but it can't resurrect you, right? And it can't resurrect your relatives, but they they weren't fluent, so they sounded foolish. Why? Well, it returns us to the point I was making earlier. When you're taking your message to the world, it helps to know how to translate it. Now, we're in a portion of Acts where the unconquered gospel is migrating out among the people. And in the course of the narrative, Paul has arrived at Athens. And Athens, by the way, is just this kind of cosmopolitan urban center with different people and different customs and different languages. And so Paul was in a position, once again, in the Acts narrative, where he must find a bridge between the good news and a new culture, the good news and a new people. And it's here, right here in Acts chapter 17, that we begin to see even more the actual scope of Paul's skills in gospel translation. Because it's here that we see certain stages, if you will, that Paul passes through which display what I want to call this morning Paul's gospel fluency. Now, don't, don't get intimidated by that word. That, that fluency word, what, when I, what I mean when I say that is fluency is when witnesses make the gospel plain for the person they're reaching. That's all I'm talking about. When we make the gospel plain for the person we are seeking to reach. And so this isn't overwhelming because actually here in this passage, what, what we're going to see, what we're going to behold is how Paul makes it so simple. And he does that, I think, in part because he wants to arm us with an understanding of how we can take the gospel to the very people that we're praying for and reaching out to and that we're carrying as a burden on our heart and make it plain to them as well. So I see four different stages here in Acts chapter 17. We can call this four stages of gospel fluency. Stage one is gospel perception. Gospel perception. Gospel perception is 
seeing and understanding fallenness through the gospel. Seeing and understanding fallenness through the gospel. Now, let's look and see how that worked for Paul beginning in verse 16, right at the very beginning. First verse that we read this morning. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Okay, let's just stop there for a second, and let's just imagine the picture that's taking place here. Imagine this for a second. So Paul was in Athens. He's waiting for Silas. He's waiting for Timothy. But he's not just hanging around. I mean, he's looking around the city. He is taking an interest. He is curious. He is intrigued. He is provoked. And in fact, at one point, what he sees him alarms him because the landscape is filled with idols. And the Athenians worshipped, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of gods. They worshipped so many gods that they actually had an idol to the unknown god just to make sure they covered all their bases. In his commentary on the book of Acts, John, John Stott said, quote, This is what Paul saw, a city submerged in idols, a city submerged in idols. Now, here's what I want you to connect with, is that's not just a description of of, of Athens. That's every city. That's Owensboro. That's Tallahassee. That's every city. And the task before Paul was the same task that's before us, which is why we must pay particular attention to this passage. A city submerged in idols. And so it says in verse 16 that it had this certain response or this reaction in Paul. It says, he was provoked. The word there for that particular reaction means kind of greatly distressed. It's a complicated blend between kind of sorrow and anger. Why? Because Paul had this this gospel perception thing going where he's seeing what the idols represent. He's seeing their fallenness through the gospel, and he's feeling what God felt for these people behind the idols, these people that were worshiping the idols. See, to gain gospel perception, again, gospel perception is seeing and understanding fallenness through the gospel. To gain gospel perception, you have to be like Paul, out among the people. Paul was not sitting in a chair with a remote in his hand just thinking about this stuff. He was out among the people. In verse 16, Paul is in the city. He's walking through the city. It says he sees these different things. He goes on to explain in verse 22, as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. See, as a witness, Paul is is in the culture. He's observing the culture. He is studying the culture. I mean, I'm, I'm so provoked by this because I think about, you know, the neighborhood we live in, the place that I go get coffee, and, and how often am I posturing myself as, as a witness where I'm not simply there for myself, I'm not simply there to meet some kind of need that I feel I have, but I'm studying it as a witness to think what the idols might say about the people. In the culture, studying, pondering, observing. These are not academic exercises for Paul. Paul's not looking at the the people and their customs and their idols through a microscope, kind of coldly detached from what they're all about. He's not just reading about this. He's not Googling it. Paul's not among them as a tourist. He's among them as a witness. And that's an important distinction to make. See, a a, a tourist, when I go somewhere as a tourist, I want to go to the best places and I want to see the nicest sides of whatever land that I'm in. I was talking to a buddy named Al who has worked into uh, Cuba for a number of years, and he was telling me how the Cuban government under, under Castro had for years when people would go to Havana, they would only show them the nicest parts. And in part, that was because he was trying to control perception, but the other whole part of that is he knows what tourists want. They want the nicer things. Tourists prefer to see the world in the way that it's typically, typically advertised, not in the way that it is, 
but in the way that it's advertised, the way it looks on the website. But the witness is different. The witness is in the culture in order to see and observe the reality of the fallenness, to know what the baseline is, where are we starting, where does the gospel need to have impact among the people, where are the idols. Tourists just wants to be entertained. To, to, to the witness, though, he or she is there for a completely different reason. The tourist is, I mean, to a tourist, I mean, let's be honest, all the people look the same, you know. But the witness sees the differences. Ha! I reminds me of being at a uh, at a conference once. I was, I had the privilege of speaking in the morning. Went out to lunch with a group of men from Sri Lanka. Had a just delightful lunch in talking with them. We were just talking about what's going on in Sri Lanka and all that. And after the lunch, um, said goodbye. I went up and I hugged one of the guys, and he kind of stepped back and put his hands on my shoulder. He said, "He said, wait a minute." You're the guy that spoke this morning. I said, well, yeah, that was me. I, I, that was my honor to do that this morning. And then he kind of walked away, went like this. Ah, you Americans, you all look the same to me. <laughs> and I thought about that. I thought, yeah, that's, that's the perspective that we have. But that's not necessarily a gospel perspective, that everyone looks the same. Everything looks the same. And when God gives us gospel perception, it helps to see, truly see the people and to understand their fallenness through the gospel. So that's the first one. We're talking about stages of gospel fluency. The first one is this gospel perception where God helps us to understand and see people's fallenness through the gospel. The second one is is gospel engagement. That's stage two, gospel engagement. This is where the perception that Paul derived moved Paul and moves us to action. It moves Paul in Acts 17, it moves him to begin to engage the different groups that he was in the first stage studying and observing. And the fascinating thing about Acts 17 is it actually lists four different groups that Paul engaged. In verse 17, it says that he reasoned in the synagogue. Of course, the synagogue would be the gathering place for the Jewish people. So he's reasoning among the Jews. But then he's not just confining it to his own kind of people, like where he came from, even though they're lost, but they're still like me. They still look like me. Oh, no, 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 Paul's, Paul's in the marketplace as well, the text goes on to say, which now would include the Greeks and the Gentiles and the aliens that have come from other lands. But it doesn't end there either. Because in verse 18, he begins to engage the Epicureans. The Epicureans call it, followed Epicurus, a dude that was alive somewhere a couple hundred years, two or three hundred years before Christ who believed that there was no afterlife, and so we might as well enjoy pleasure and do all we can to avoid pain and just enjoy life. I mean, this is kind of like, like old-school hedonism, way back in the day, the way it used to be experienced and conceived of by the Epicureans. But not just the Epicureans, it also says in verse 18 that he was engaging their rivals. So the Epicureans had this group of people that they despised called the Stoics, who believed that God or gods, and uh, they believed in, controlled certain things, that there was a fate involved, that life was not just about pleasure for the Stoic, but it was about duty. You have a deity, you serve that deity, you do your duty to that deity, you are submitted, you must endure, because life was about denying the way you feel and living through duty. So when James Stockdale's fighter jet was shot down over Vietnam in 1965, there was a famous quote where he said, you know, he kind of got out of his flight because he was about to be arrested by the, Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese. And he basically said, he, he later wrote that he said this to himself. He said, I am leaving the world of technology and I am entering the world of a stoic. 
In other words, he, he recognized that the only way I'm going to survive this prison camp was for, if I focus on duty, not on emotions, if I focus on duty and endurance, and I control the way I feel. That's stoicism. So Paul is among these people, and he's actively engaging them. He's engaging them on their turf. He's engaging them right where they are. He doesn't expect them to come to him. He's going to them. And his perception, and this is really important, his perception of where they are in all of their idols, in all of their strange beliefs, his perception of their worship doesn't disgust him. In fact, it moves him to want to engage them. Listen, let me make a point that I think is really important. We can't win people that we are adversarial towards. We can't win people that we are adversarial towards. I mean, let me be honest with you. One of the reasons why I don't watch Fox News very much, and this affects people differently, so you might be completely different. One of the reasons I don't watch Fox News much is because I come away with a sense that folks that don't buy that brand of conservatism are a bunch of liberal morons. And, and what that does is it feeds my self-righteousness, which, by the way, doesn't need to be fed because it operates pretty fat and happy every day without Fox News. But here's, the, here's a, a more important effect, is it makes me feel kind of like adversarial towards the culture or towards somebody who might believe differently than than Fox News. We can't win people. We can't win a culture that we are adversarial towards. We can't win a people that we are ambivalent towards either. I mean, try walking up to your neighbors. They're backing out the driveway someday and say, I know we've never met, and the most you've ever gotten from me is like a disinterested nod every time you come out of your house and I come out of my house. But would you like to know my Jesus? Would you like to come to my church? We can't win people that we are ambivalent towards or adversarial towards. We can't, which is all another way to say we just can't win people we don't care about. We can't win people we don't care about. You know, with this, this, uh, this political season that we're in, Norma McCorvey's name is coming up quite a bit. Norma McCorvey was Jane Roe in the 1973 ruling, Roe v. Wade. And a lot of people are unaware that, that Norma McCorvey, who was Jane Roe, went through a horrific life and then later on was converted to Christ. And now I think she serves in a, in a Catholic church, but she was converted because she was serving in, in an abortion clinic and she was a very bitter and angry woman. In fact, she used to pick up the phone at times. She, and, and, and the abortion clinic uh, was right next to a, back at that time, what they called a crisis pregnancy center. They were right next to each other. And Norman McCoy would pick up the phone and say, hey, just want you to know we're killing babies over here. Slam the phone down. Because she was a bitter, angry woman. But then the people in this, in the, this uh, CPC, they began praying and crying out to God and saying, how can, we, how can we reach out to this person? How can we meet her with the love of Christ? And so they would send over cookies. And they would send their, their children over to greet her and, and make it like, yeah, we're not, we're not afraid of you. We're not, we don't see you as the personification of evil. We don't, it's not like we don't want to touch you or come near you. And over time, her heart was softened which eventually then opened the door for an invitation to church, and then a second, and then a third, and eventually she gave her life to Jesus Christ. Listen, he who has the greatest truth has the greatest love. And I think that needs to influence how we're thinking about what we see out there, the idols when we observe them, that we're not shocked or we're not offended because we can't win a world that we're adversarial towards. We can't win a world that we just don't care about. And when we study the Gospels and we study Paul, we see that, yeah, the way we enter the harvest or the way we enter the field matters to Jesus. The way we enter the field matters to the Lord of the harvest, which is part of what we take from the Gospels. I mean, Jesus, God himself, wants to reach those who are what? Hostile towards him. 
at enmity with him. Enemies of God. So God wants to reach those who are hostile, those who have violated his will, those who, have, who want nothing to do with him, those that will turn their back on him at any point and worship other gods. So what does he do? Well, he, he leaves his glory in heaven. He empties himself of the prerogatives of deity that he had and he wraps himself in flesh and he comes and he dwells among us and he eats with us and sleeps with us and serves us and puts a towel around and kneels in front of us and washes our feet and loves us and transmits the truth about the horror of our fallen condition through the way that he loves us. Why? Because great truth inspires great love. And my point is that he didn't live like, you don't see Jesus like just walking the world reacting to the idols that he sees. He didn't withdraw from Judas or Peter because he saw how fallen they really were. On the contrary, he pursued Peter. And with Paul, Paul somehow engaged the people so effectively that they wanted to hear more from him. Come on up to the Areopagus. We want to hear more what's going on. And that kind of leads me to the next point. So there's, there's gospel perception, which leads to stage two, which is gospel engagement, which leads to stage three, which is gospel facility. Now, don't let that word throw you. That just means ability or skill in application, gospel facility, just means the skill that we have in taking the gospel and applying it in places. So gospel facility is about how we engage the culture. In other words, we look beyond just seeing their fallenness, seeing their idols, and then we begin to interpret the idols that we see we begin to interpret those idols in light of the gospel. So, Paul goes to the Areopagus, which the Areopagus back then was kind of a combination of the, the local university and the town square and the pub, all kind of rolled into one. And, you know, this is the place where folks went to relate and debate and talk and hear things. And so Paul stands up and beginning in verse 22, he says, I perceive some things about you. I perceive that you are religious because I was walking around among the city and I noticed a few things. In fact, I noticed an altar, he says, to the unknown God. And then he goes on to say, and so I'm here to make known that which is unknown to you. And so Paul begins to walk them through a kind of theology. God is creator, verse 24. God is self-sufficient, verse 25. God as ruler, verse 26. And then you know what he does? This, this is mind-blowing to me. What he does is he begins to quote a couple of Greeks, and then he brings it all home with this call to repentance, this, this, this altar call. And if we read through this all too quickly, we're going to miss what is an impressive display of gospel facility by Paul. And, and this is seen in two different ways. And this is what I want you to focus on with me. This, is, this gospel facility for Paul is seen in two different ways. First, with Paul's connection to the culture. His connection to the culture. In other words, Paul didn't simply perceive their idols... But listen, Paul had read their authors. Paul had heard their music. In verse 28, Paul is actually referring to a popular hymn to Zeus by Epimenides that had been written years before. So he's, I mean, it would have been, you know, the equivalent of, you know, what's the hot song today? So Paul's quoting it back to them. And then what he does is he cites one of their Stoic poets in the next line. So that, for we are indeed his offspring, that's a poet, very prominent one, who is of the Stoic persuasion, and he's quoting that back to him. Listen, here's the point I want to make. See, for Paul, these expressions of pop culture, whether it was art or music or literature, 
These expressions of pop culture told him something about what they believe. And so he studied it. So he considered it. Who knows? He may have even enjoyed some of it. But he did so understanding what I would call the two sides of the cultural coin. And, and we don't necessarily have time to unpack all of this, but, but, but the two sides of the cultural coin is this side is that culture carries values, and the other side is that culture reveals needs. And these things are constantly in play as we begin to engage culture and interact with culture and interpret culture. And so culture carries values. Certainly culture carries values. You you read a book, you visit a website, you watch a movie, and, and, and most of that is radiating some specific worldview or belief system that we as Christians must be attuned to. The problem is that that many Christians discern that culture is carrying a certain value system and react to that, react to the fact that there's a value system there. And part of the reason they do that is understandable. In other words, they see believers mindlessly swallowing culture in order to reach the culture, and there's something inside of them that just says, hey, I I don't know everything, but I don't think we reach the world by becoming like the world. You know, would Christ sit with liars, hookers, and tax collectors? Oh, you bet he would. Was it evident that he wasn't one of them? (laughs) Absolutely. So, Paul has that going for him. And we should as well, where we recognize it carries the values, but we don't instinctively react to that. But Paul is also able to see their idols, read their books, um, listen to their music, and hear the need that it reveals. And see, this is where we as believers can be so reactive at times that we don't recognize that part of what that represents is not simply something to react to, but something that is is speaking to us about the need within. Because there's a lot of Christians today that hear the you know what comes from the culture and they immediately want to, I don't know, you know, you organize a boycott of Kroger because of the they sell the idols. And you know, or, or condemn those that use the, the, the altars that the idols sit on, or you know, start a blog about all the dangers of the altars and the idols. And, 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 and by the way, there's a place for, for all of that at some point. But the, the point that I'm trying to make that's evident with Paul is that you don't change idols in people's heart by reacting to idols in people's heart. You'll, you'll, never, you'll never instigate change through reaction. And I speak that as an expert in reaction. I mean, I think as a parent, I think there were, there were many times where I reacted to the altars that the kids admired rather than studying the altars the kids admired and rather trying to understand, you know, what does it mean that a teenager worships his or her peers? Okay, I mean, we would all basically grant that as an assumption. It's a normal thing. For, for What does that mean, though? What does that mean about where their heart is? What does that mean about how, how, it, how our approach should be shaped by that reality? How does the gospel speak to that? What does it mean that they loved, you know, Drake or Bieber or, or, or Nicki Minaj? You know, what do those things mean about what they, where they might be tempted or what they might be tempted to worship? And, and let's not confine it to teenagers. I mean, what does it mean that the middle class idolizes recreation or idolizes their children or idolizes their stuff? You know, the more respectable idols of the suburban middle class. See, Paul had gospel facility, which meant that he was able to see what our idols revealed about our sins, about our longings, about our desires, about our sense of emptiness. And he was able to bridge from where people were and walk them over the bridge to the gospel. 
which meant that he was able to hear their music and read their books and see traces of the divine in them. You know, ways that that they were created in the image of God and that was being reflected, even in some of the things that these secular artists had written or the songs that they had, had created. And this is coming from Paul. Paul was, Paul was neither hip, you know, kind of trafficking in popular culture, nor was he a fundamentalist reacting to popular culture. He was fluent in the gospel. And so, you know, the first way, the first point I was making was Paul's connection to the culture. This is what gospel facility involves. It's a connection to the culture. But then also with Paul, there is this there's this boldness with the truth. So Paul was standing before the Athenians at the Areopagus, and he's not there, you know, caring what they think about him. He's not wanting to be liked. He's not wanting to be accepted. Yes, he does do the hard work of looking for the common ground, even looking among their culture for ways that he can make the gospel plain to them. But then he does turn the corner, and he speaks eternal truth. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. You were ignorant once. He says, I get that. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given great assurance by raising him from the dead. You were ignorant. You got to repent. There is a judgment. Jesus was raised from the dead. Repent. Are you like me at all? Did you ever find yourself wanting to make Jesus like more palatable? You know, more, more hip to kind of offer the king without the cross or offer the religion without the relationship or the relationship without the repentance. Or... And, you know, for me it's, it's funny because I was converted back in the 70s under a message that was basically... Come to Jesus, and he'll give your life meaning. Come to Jesus, and he'll improve your life. And there's a sense where that was true, but it was an incomplete gospel. It was a sanitized gospel. Because you can't be fluent in a language and just speak the easy words. You've got to learn the hard words in order to be fluent in a language. I mean, Keith was telling us yesterday how, how he had learned Spanish, but he didn't really get it all, and so he went and embedded himself in the Dominican Republic for six weeks, and then he was able to learn not just the simple words, but the hard words. The point is, it's simple to learn the easy words within the culture. It's hard to learn and speak the hard words. Fluency requires hard words. The gospel requires hard words. For me to, compl- to, for me to understand the gospel and, in, and have it inspire my gratitude in God, I had to move from, Jesus is going to give your life meaning, to, you are a sinner and you need a Savior. And that wasn't just back then. That's each and every day. And there's a sense now that when, when, when sin becomes big, the gospel becomes sweet. And I, and I understand a little better why I needed a Savior and continue to need Him each and every day. And Paul got that. Paul was fluent in that. He had facility in that because his gospel included these hard hard truths. He used words like repentance and judgment. So please don't misunderstand by thinking that because I'm advocating that we understand the culture, that somehow we're pulling back on delivering truth to the culture. But truth coming from a heart that loves people and that has served people and that has created a bridge of trust for people, has a far different effect than being the prophet standing on high, having just come from church, delivering something to them on Sunday afternoon, and then going back and retreating back into one's home. So that's stage three. Stage three is gospel facility, which then leads us to the final stage, gospel response. So we're talking about gospel fluency. This is about being a gospel fluent witness. That's the theme of today's message. And 
And we see that Paul's gospel perception then led to Paul's gospel engagement, which displayed Paul's gospel facility, which then led, at the conclusion of Acts 17, to this wonderful gospel response. Wonderful, and I would say perplexing as well, gospel response. In fact, let's just review that again together. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some, here's the third group now, so we see the first group mocked. Second group said, we'll hear you again on this. Now here's this third group. Some men joined him and believed, and among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and the woman named Damaris, and others with them. And so the bold preaching of this unedited gospel had this polarizing effect where it repelled some and attracted others. So we see first that there were some that mocked, verse 32. And it's good to remember that when we, that when we share truth, that truth is fundamentally provocative. And it's wise to keep that in mind as you think about turning the corner from just cultivating a relationship with maybe your cousin or your family member to actually sharing the gospel. That truth is provocative. It incites something in people. And then there's the second group that you might just call curious. You know, they're, they're basically saying, um, you know, well, we'll, we'll hear you again about this. And by the way, there's nothing noble about that particular response. Paul just hit a nerve with them, and this is just a kind of a courteous dismissal on their part of Paul. So we'll hear you, we'll hear you more about this. So you've got two of the three groups that are just writing Paul off. And then you have these others, much smaller group, that believed, verse 34, that the God who was unknown to them became known to them through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's kind of how this section ends. And I love the way it ends because it enters with a specific mention of these two individuals who came to Christ due to a message that was honest and clear from a fluent person in 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 an environment where many, 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 many people heard A few responded. Many heard. A few responded. In fact, there was a lot of work. I want to suggest to you, if you step back and you take into the account of all that Paul did in Acts 17, there was a lot of work studying the culture, engaging the culture, preaching to the the culture. You got all this work, but not a lot of fruit. A lot of work. Little fruit. And, you know, it kind of says to me that at the end of the day, maybe this is more what it's about. You know, God taking our many efforts to touch a few. Many efforts to touch a few. Maybe even to touch one. Maybe that that one person that just came to mind for you, that that face that just flashed up on your your mental screen, just, just one. And I don't know if it affects you this way, but that gives me hope as I think about my community or my neighborhood or the businesses that I might frequent or, you know, that that I may need to try a number of things just to try to touch a few, maybe just to try to touch one. And maybe you feel the same way I do, which is, you know, if you're anything like me, you can almost feel foiled because God didn't bless the little that you've done. It's like, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, who among us? There, there's Keith, and then there's a big drop-off between him and me, him and the rest of us. You know, most of us are, you know, we're just doing life. And so, but we're doing a little bit. But we get really frustrated even though we're, not, we're only doing a little bit. And we pray to God. We say, Lord, I've been praying. I've been trying. I've been inviting. I've been learning. I've been trying to reach out. And it just seems like you're not holding up your end of the bargain. As if this is some kind of transaction that we've prearranged with God. Now, God, you know, I mean, we're going to work this out, right? I do this, this, and this, and then you deliver, and that, that qualifies you as God. 
and substantiates that you are who you say you are. And it makes my effort look good. And so shouldn't it be like that? And God says, no, 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 you don't understand. If we're going to bring Paul into play, then let's follow Paul's whole example. Paul says, here's Paul's take. I planted Apollos water. God gave the growth. Which is another way to say the guys who plant and the guys who water don't always see the fruit from their efforts. That our job is really just to keep sowing. You know your mission is? You know what your mission is this afternoon? You know what your mission is? You think about your community. You think about those family members that you're praying for and that your heart bleeds for because you honestly fear that they might be going to hell. You know what your message you, you know what your mission is? It's to so much and trust God. So much, so much love. A little more, you know, opportunities, a little more service, a little more reaching out. And trust God. Which, that probably means the same thing for you as it does for me, which is basically, we might need to try a little more. Try a little more. Do you feel discouraged this morning by the absence of fruit in the little that you have done? Try a little more. Sow more and trust God. Do you have people in your life that appear far from God, and yet they are content at being far from God? Try a little more. I mean, the person that we're listening to this morning, Paul, there was nobody more content or self-satisfied than the very man we're studying this morning. He was seeking to destroy hundreds and hundreds of Christians. His cause was to discredit Christianity, to collapse the future of Christianity, to destroy it completely. Paul was the very same. He was content. He was self-satisfied. He didn't know the Savior. He didn't feel he needed to know the Savior, and eventually the Savior broke through. Maybe you should try a little more. You know, do, do you feel like you've just run out of ideas for your loved one? You know, you, you're, you're not fluent yet, and, and, and you want to be, but you're not. And maybe the word for you this morning is, you know, try a little more. I don't have the answer. I don't know where it, all, where it all lands, where it all locks down. But let's be honest. Most of us are here this morning because someone was fluent enough to speak the gospel to us and they didn't give up. They tried a little more. So let, let's do this. Let's, let's pray together that God would help us to so much and trust him so much and trust him and keep us from giving up. Help us to try a little more. That verse 434 might also be said of us, some men joined him and believed. Lord, let that be said of us, Lord, as we, as we try a little bit more, as we so much Lord, as we pour into the lives of those we love, as we consider the field that you have given us in our neighborhood, in our family, at our jobs, that you would help us to not become discouraged, to not feel like we've, we've out, outlived our usefulness evangelistically. Lord, that you would inspire our faith to try a little more so that what was said of Paul here might be said of us too that some men joined him, just a few, and believed. Lord, bring that fruit forward in our life as well. In Jesus' name, amen.